Welcome to the H&E Podcast, where we seek to celebrate the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through discussions on church history, biblical spirituality, the Bible, Christian living, and theology. Shall we get started? On today's episode, I have with me Nate Pickowitz. Nate is the pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Gilmington Ironworks, New Hampshire. He is the editor of a couple of our books with H&E, uh, specifically John Calvin's Justification by Faith, A.W. McClure's John Cotton, the Patriarch of New England. He is also the author of Why We're Protestant, and he is the co-author of The American Puritans. Nate, it's a joy to have you with us, brother. Thank you, Chance. I appreciate being here. This is great. So today is a big day for you. Yeah, it's uh, it's new book release day. Anytime you have a new book coming out, that's always uh, that's always a big party. It's good. That's great. It's excellent that we can get to uh, record this podcast May first on the release of the book, and uh, how appropriate for our conversation today. Yeah, no, I can't wait to talk about it. So, uh, so you've just released a new book, and it's published today, May first. Uh, can you tell us more about that? So essentially, the book is a history of early New England uh, Puritanism, and it's through the eyes of, of nine key leaders. And so what we basically did is did nine chapters of biography uh, highlighting the lives and uh, ministries of each of these nine and sort of tried to fill out the, the history itself through their, their testimony, through their lives. And so it's a work of history, but it's also a work of uh, mini biography. So that's really the, uh, the scope of the whole thing. That's excellent. I'm, I'm really curious. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about your research process, especially as you uh, did this with a co-author? Yeah. So, I mean, I've been studying the Puritans, uh, at least the American Puritans for you the know, last several years. And so I had amassed a, a quite a bit of, of books and articles and you know, I've done my own personal research. And so, you know, for me, I was, car- I was already living in the world um, and so to be able to go and, and zero in on some of these key leaders uh, was really just a lot of fun. It was an extension of my own personal study. So I'd already done a lot of research on John Cotton and Cotton Mather, uh, some on William Bradford. And then to go ahead and just keep on going, it just really filled it out a lot more. Uh, but what, what I essentially did, and I assume that Dustin did a similar thing, we can talk about that process in a second, but... What I did is I just went out and I got all the the major biographies that were written about these figures. Uh, some of them had quite a bit written about them. You know, Cotton Mather, for example, has probably a dozen or 15 full biographies about his life. But other figures like Samuel Willard had very little written. So I just went out and found everything I could find and then tried to take the the scholarship and the stories and the works of each of these people and sort of distill it into you know, 20 or 25 pages um, and really try to capture the essence of their life and thought, you know, all the best stories about their life, all the key phrases, uh, sort of make it a highlight reel of their life. Um, and so we don't get as much into, you know, all of the, um, all the stories, all the, um, the debates over you know, certain events that happened or theological debates. We really just want to highlight uh, and focus on uh, their story their testimony, major accomplishments. Uh, that's really the key thing. So it was it was heavily research intensive, but it was uh, a lot of fun. 
Um, and then as far as working with Dustin, I mean, we sat down pretty early on once we decided that we wanted to to work together. And once we had the topic and sort of the the arc of the story, you know, we spent some time talking about which key events we wanted to hit and which things we wanted to highlight. And uh, at that point, we sort of distilled um, the chapters down to, to nine key people. And then we just really assigned them to one another. You know, I'd, I would say something like, oh, I really want to write the Cotton Mather chapter. He's like, well, I really want, want the John Elliott chapter. So we, we just divvied it up according to what we were both interested in researching. And then we just went to work and, uh, and each of us individually went and researched and wrote. And then once we had uh, the bones of a, of a solid chapter, we would then send it to each other and compare notes and give feedback. And, you know, he's a, a competent editor. So he, you know, he tore apart a few of my chapters, which is a lot of fun, um, painful fun, but still fun. And, uh, and so we just really shared that together. And then once we had everything finished, we just shared everything together, printed it off, and just started reading it for the cohesiveness of it. And uh, that's when that really sort of melded together and uh, and became what it is. So that was a little bit of the process. I mean, certainly there's a lot more to that, but that's really the, the general scope of it. Did you have any surprises as you did your research? Any that you were, obviously you said you had done research prior, but as you got kind of dug in a little bit deeper, were there any surprises? Yeah, I think there were. Um, you know, every time you research somebody's life, you know, you're always stumbling onto uh, their, their thoughts and their testimony, interesting stories. I think for me personally, I think two big things sort of jumped off the page at me. Uh, one was just the the delightful quirkiness of Cotton Mather. Um, you know, I'd read a lot about him. He's got over 400 published works, and so uh, I was not able to read everything he'd he'd written, but you know to really dive into some of his thought and uh, and really get into the heart behind the man, read some of his journals, understand how he how he thinks. Um, you know, certainly there were you know you're getting into someone's personal life, and so there's a lot that's very revealing, a lot that's very intimate. Uh, but just uh, just how delightfully human he was, even though he made a lot of mistakes. Uh, he was just a very human person, and I find myself identifying with him. Uh, probably another figure that was really surprising, I think, was Thomas Shepard. Uh, Thomas Shepard was uh, he was a, a young minister when he came over. He was not as talented, not as theologically apt as, say, John Cotton or Thomas Hooker, but just a powerful preacher with an earnest love for Christ. Uh, he had suffered a lot. He had been through a lot physically. Um, he had lost people in his life. He had a, a difficult ministry, and he died young. He died at 44. But just when you read his his uh, diary and his journals, just the just the cries to God and the very earnest plea for grace and mercy and his confession of his faith and his love for God, and it was just very, very rich. And you read some of his writings, and it's um, he's sharp and poignant like a Luther but just very earnest. And I just really appreciated his, uh, his writing and his ministry and uh, just his steadfast stand on the things that he was uh, fighting over, which is, you know, basically over the gospel. I mean, he was a key figure in the antinomian controversy, you know, fighting for the obedience of faith. And so I was pleasantly surprised with the life of Thomas Shepard and really enjoyed uh, reading, studying him, and then also writing the chapter. I it's hard to say. I don't. It's hard to pick a favorite when you're writing, but uh, I think the Thomas Shepard chapter has a, a special place in my heart. So, for those of us who might not uh, know exactly, like what the American Puritans are, what Puritans are, do you want to kind of give us an overview of first what is a Puritan, and then 
Sure. So there's a there's a lot of discussion around this, and certainly Puritanism as a movement, as a historical movement, has really become more popular in terms of studying the movement itself. Uh, it's really been the last 50 years, it's exploded onto the scene through the work of J.I. Packer and Ian Murray and Martin Lloyd-Jones, and just a lot of scholars have really uh, delved into it. But basically what we understand is that Puritanism as a movement, as a historical movement, took place between about 1560 and 1660 in England. And it was a, a wave of, of reform. It was uh, cr Christians uh, in, within the Church of England who were seeking to further reform the Church of England and purify it. Uh, many of them believed that there were way too many rituals and, and carryovers from the Roman Catholic Church, and they wanted to purge that, uh, a lot of the liturgy, even the down to the dress, how they, how they dressed as ministers. But a lot of these things they wanted to sort of purify and try to get the Church of England to be more biblical, to look more like what they called the primitive church, which was the, the church in the book of Acts. And so that, that was a, a reform movement, a purifying movement to try to do that. Now, within that movement, again, over that 100-year period, you have different degrees of, of Puritanism. Uh, initially, Puritan was a, a derogatory term, but it was pretty soon embraced by the people who were subscribing to it. But you do have a broad spectrum. You have some Puritans who are uh, really just looking to refine the Church of England. They're, they're by and large pretty satisfied, but they're just looking to kind of, you know, change some church structure and maybe even the power structure, but they pretty much just embrace the Church of England uh, wholeheartedly. And then you kind of work down the line, you have then nonconformists, you know, that's, uh, you know, people like John Cotton, you know, Thomas Hooker, these nonconformists, you know, they regarded the Church of England as, a, you know, the real church, they called it their dear, their dear sister, their dear mother. But they, they had a lot of things that they did not want to conform to, and so they fought vigorously to reform the church from within. And then you go farther out and you have the separatist movement that basically gets to a place when they, they start to believe that the Church of England has become so corrupt, there's no way to save it, and so they separate completely. And the separatists, that's what forms the basis of the pilgrims. So the pilgrims that leave uh, and go to Holland and then eventually to Plymouth, that's that sort of most extreme movement of Puritanism. Now, a lot of folks will argue that once these people left England and settled in America, that they ceased somehow to be Puritans. And so even though they fall outside of the historical Puritan movement within the confines of England, they've now moved on and they possibly have a, a different focus, a different, I wouldn't say theology, but certainly missiology, a different ecclesiology, um, that they became pilgrims. Well, but the truth is, is that they retained the spirit of Puritanism. They still valued, you know, sound doctrine. They were all reformed in their theology. They subscribed to the doctrines of grace. Um, they had a focus on biblical preaching. They loved the word of God. They were devoted to piety. They were devoted to, you know, a strong sense of worship and church. So, you know, they, they brought with them in their hearts that same spirit uh, and so, you know, American Puritanism, uh, that's a term uh, that was coined, as far as I can tell, within the last hundred years to refer to this American version of the Puritan movement from, that came over from England. Um, again, some people don't like that terminology because it seems to betray the historic nature of the movement. But really, if you're examining it from the whole perspective and looking at the commonalities, 
uh, you see the, the fingerprint of Puritanism pretty clearly uh, in early uh, America. So that's really what we're after is to trace that. Uh, many of these ministers were friends with and did ministry with the Puritans in England. And so for them, in their minds, there wasn't a difference. Um, but for us, as we look back, we do see a, a distinct difference between uh, the two movements. Yeah, that's really helpful. So their writings, you've said, are coming back and kind of making a revival uh, in the last decade or so. You know, the church is always on the lookout for for, for good theology, for good works, good books. I mean, we're Christians are people who love knowledge and love truth. Um, and, you know, certainly, you know, so many of us are, are readers. I mean, we, you know, our life and practice is built around a revelation that's contained in a book, you know, so we're used to interacting with text and with books just as believers. And so we're always on the search for truth. And so in the last 50, 75 years, uh, so many uh, believers have have discovered and re- sort of rediscovered just the the beauty of the prose and just the richness of devotional thought of the Puritans, and uh, we, we've uncovered a lot of them from the British side. So you know, a lot of people are reading John Owen, or they're trying to read John Owen. They're reading John Owen. They're reading John Bunyan. Uh, you know, they're reading William Ames and Thomas Watson and all these you know wonderful. Uh, theological, you know, majestic Puritans and a lot of their writings. But, you know, by and large, we're not reading uh, the works of those who came over to America. I mean, the only sort of Puritan-esque person that we tend to read these days is uh, Jonathan Edwards, and he's really outside of the movement. He's probably the last Puritan, if you will, um, but he really is outside of the of the historical movement. Uh, but we haven't really been reading uh, the work of the New England Puritans, but there's just a lot there. I, I don't think that people regard the New England Puritan writings as uh, as devotional, perhaps, and certainly they weren't concocting, you know, theological treatises and masterpieces. A lot of their work is polemical. A lot of their their work is trying to argue for positions and and make doctrinal stands. I mean, they were fighting real time battles against uh, antinomianism and a lot of the, the, the croaching apostasy that's coming in uh, because, you know, every single person who was fleeing an institution was fleeing to America. And so you, you don't know who you're going to get when you step off the, the boat to the shore. You could be getting the worst rank heretic on, you know, in the whole boat, you know, and they're coming into the colony and they want to bring their, their core body of teaching. And, and so a lot of their works are polemical, refuting error, trying to maintain and establish some sense of order in society. But there is still a lot that's written that's devotional, that's instructive. Uh, I mean, some of these works are really uh, quite remarkable and have their place in history. But again, we're, it's just unknown. We don't, we, don't, we don't know the works as much. And so there is a, a movement, I think, growing to sort of reintroduce people to a lot of these works and uh, try to popularize them again. Speaking of the works and getting them, you know, to the lay level and the popular level, uh, where? <laughs> no, we're uh, so, uh, you know, certainly you know this already because <laughs> we've been working on this for a while. But for those who might not be aware of this yet, um, we're looking to put out uh, a new reprint series. Uh, it was a work that I began just on my own several years ago. Uh, but really, we're looking to take this this project and kick it into high gear. 
and we are going to be releasing the American Puritans series. Uh, so uh, H&E will have this series. Um, I'm doing some work to edit. Uh, we've got other editors that are coming on board. And the big idea is to just try to take some of the more popular and more valuable works from these uh, New England writers, the, Pur the Puritans that are in America, and, and popularize them and make them more accessible. Uh, in some cases, we're we're modernizing some language. We're putting in some chapter divisions and some headings and some explanatory notes and just trying to make these editions as accessible as possible so you can kind of get to the meat of the matter. So um, I'm excited about this. I've been excited about this for a while. Uh, and so I think the, the audience can look forward to in the coming months and Lord willing coming years to kind of see some more of these titles coming out uh, and to be accessible for, for modern audiences. Well, I think that's a great way to transition to uh, sort of this next point and maybe, I guess, really an announcement. Where can we find some of these works? <laughs> well, I'm glad that you asked that question, Chance. <laughs> no, we're uh, so, uh, you know, certainly you know this already because we've been working on this for a while. But for those who might not be aware of this yet, um, we're looking to put out uh, a new reprint series. Uh, it was a work that I began just on my own several years ago. Uh, but really, we're looking to take this this project and kick it into high gear, and we are going to be releasing the American Puritans series. Uh, so uh, H&E will have this series. Um, I'm doing some work to edit. Uh, we've got other editors that are coming on board. And the big idea is to just try to take some of the more popular and more valuable works from these uh, New England writers, the, Pur the Puritans that are in America, and, and popularize them and make them more accessible. Uh, in some cases, we're we're modernizing some language, we're putting in some chapter divisions and some headings and some explanatory notes and just trying to make these editions as accessible as possible so you can kind of get to the meat of the matter. So um, I'm excited about this. I've been excited about this for a while. Uh, and so I think the, the audience can look forward to in the coming months and Lord willing coming years to kind of see some more of these titles coming out uh, and to be accessible for, for modern audiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited for this uh, series, Nate. And now, uh, what uh, what are the first several or couple books that uh, the listeners can expect? So, as far as I know, the first three, and I you know you're the publisher, so you're the one to tell me what's coming. But uh, the ones that at least I can see right right now are going to be uh, Cotton Mather's Directions for a Candidate of the Ministry. That was his. Uh, his Discipleship Manual for Young Pastors, uh, also Christ the Fountain of Life by John Cotton. And then there's another one that's by uh, Increase Mather uh, called The Mystery of Christ, and that's going to be coming out uh, as well. Uh, and so these are just, again, you know, devotional works, instructional works, uh, and Lord willing, I mean, there's so many more titles. Every time I find a new title, I'm like, oh, this looks good. I find, you know, 10 titles behind it. I'm like, oh, wow, these are great too, you know. So there's just so much that they wrote. Uh, like I said before, Cotton Mather has 400 titles just to himself. Uh, John Cotton wrote 40 titles. Um, Samuel Willard has quite a few. Samuel Willard has, I don't know if we're ever going to get a chance to reprint this, but he has the largest uh, early American book in print. He has a, um, a systematic theology that was one and a half times the size of Calvin's Institutes uh, called The Complete Body of Divinity. So, I mean, these guys didn't sit around on their hands. You know, they really, they worked hard. They taught, they wrote, they published. Uh, they just really wanted uh, early Americans to, uh, to have access to sound doctrine. So 
uh, Lord willing, we're going to publish as many of these as we can get a hold of, and and hopefully it'll be uh, instructive and helpful for uh, for readers. Yeah, amen. I'm I'm really looking forward to that, and uh, it's been a a fun fun adventure so far. Well, last year you edited the work um, A. W. McClure's uh, John Cotton. It's uh, the biography. That was in 2019. I've had a chance to read it a couple times. I just actually finished uh, it for the second time. Can you tell us more about about that biography and a little more about John Cotton? He was a minister that came over uh, from uh, England. He arrived here in 1634. He was born in 1585. And so by the time he got to America, he was already uh, an older man. You know, he wasn't a lot of the, the settlers that came over were in their 20s and 30s, but he had already been a minister for 20 years in England and already had a body of work and was already respected. And so he came over, settled in Plymouth, uh, or excuse me, Massachusetts Bay Colony, and began to minister there for another 20 years. Um, And a lot of his influence had to do with the theological formation of what we know to be congregationalism. And uh, at the time it was called independency, but really he was looking for a middle way between uh, the Presbyterian form of government and what was called Brownism, which was just pure democracy, which is a, what a lot of people think the Congregationalism is today, um, and which is really not true Congregationalism. Uh, congregationalism is really, by definition, uh, elder-led Congregationalism. That's what that is. And so Cotton spent a lot of his time. He has at least seven works um, that he wrote on on the topic and really helped New England get off the ground in terms of organizing their churches, understanding you know biblical authority and, and biblical leadership, um, making sure that people had uh, a voice, but it was certainly um, under the the banner of of God's ordained authority. Uh, but it was a, a way just to learn how to uh, get churches to thrive and get communities to thrive. So he was influential in terms of uh, his writing. Uh, he was a, a pastor. He loved his church. He taught voraciously, and he was teaching three, four times a week. Uh, he's preached through uh, the New Testament at least one and a half times over, Old Testament. He wrote commentaries. So just a titanic figure. Uh, he even wrote a catechism called Milk for Babes that was used in America for 150 years. Just about every single child that grew up in America for the first 150 years learned John Cotton's catechism. So just a, a, a tour de force, just a, a force of nature. This guy really, he loved the Lord. He was influential. Uh, he was talented and uh, he was godly. So I just really appreciate him. I, I love his story. I love a lot of the, the smaller stories of his life and just really had a lot of fun editing this book. Just quickly, the, the book that was written by A.W. McClure, it was a sketch that McClure wrote in the 1850s um, he was trying to, again, recover some of the stories of these uh, these towering figures, and he focused primarily on John Cotton. He's got some works on, on a couple other leaders as well, but uh, he put out this book. Uh, I want to say it was 1846 was the original version of this book. Uh, but he put it out, and uh, and that was that ran for a number of years. But that fell off. I mean, no one's read that one for a long time. So I just grabbed it, re-edited some of it. But for the most part, it's largely in its original form, and I uh, just reprinted that and retitled it uh, "John Cotton, Patriarch of New England." So just trying to get that out there and get that his telling of the story uh, out there to people to read. So one thing I found interesting was his conversion story. 
Did you want to talk about his conversion and how that affected his his preaching? Yeah. So the the story of his conversion, uh, John Cotton is fascinating because he he really experiences two conversions, and I've actually I've written an article about this, and I I, I just love the story. Um, so the, there's two conversions that he experiences, and certainly it's a little bit tongue in cheek to say that, but his his first true conversion was his conversion to Christ, and uh, you know while he's at uh, Cambridge, he, he's subject to, you know, the greatest Puritan minds, and, and certainly the most prominent one is William Perkins. And William Perkins, I mean, William Perkins is the, the Paul Washer of Puritanism. I mean, he was just a, a very forceful, powerful, passionate preacher. And so he he's exerting this, this titanic influence at Cambridge. And so all the students are there. They're sitting under his ministry, under his teaching. And that included John Cotton. And so as a young, a young man studying for vocational ministry, he was going and he's listening to the lectures and listening to preachers. And, and over and over again, he's hearing Perkins call for repentance and faith. And he's talking about sin. He's talking about, you know, he's preaching the gospel. And, and as an unconverted young man, John Cotton wants to hear nothing of it. He, he can't stand it. He hates the preaching. He hates the messages. So much so that uh, when William Perkins dies, John Cotton is walking down the street and he hears the funeral bells tolling from, you know, from the funeral that, that, that notifying that Perkins had died. And he confesses that his, his heart actually leapt. He was excited. He was happy. Finally, this guy's out of my life, you know, and he, can, he, he admitted that much later in his life. But he actually rejoiced a little bit that, that this man who had been bothering him so badly with his preaching was gone. But then John Cotton comes under the the tutelage of uh, Richard Sibbs. Richard Sibbs is a very different kind of a minister. He was not as forceful and powerful and dogmatic as Perkins. He's called the physician of the soul. He was a much more gentle and and pastoral uh, Puritan. And so Cotton starts to to study under him and and really what happens is that Sibbs takes him under his wing and he he does the same thing. He preaches the gospel and ministers to him and over the course of about 3 years you know, John Cotton, his heart is just uh, attacked and and uh, and assaulted by the truth of God's word, and it finally gets broken down to the place where he finally uh, repents and trusts in Christ as his Savior. But in the process of doing that, he, he, he while he's doing this, he's still preaching all these you know uh, erudite sermons, and he's really going for oratory. I mean, the sermon was this this uh, performance piece, you know, back in this time, and so he's preaching all these really uh, over the top sermons. And as he's coming into faith in Jesus Christ, he's also coming to the conviction that, boy, you know, all this oratory stuff that I, did, that I do, it doesn't really do anything. Like he's, he kind of becomes ashamed of his own preaching and realizes the, uh, the power and the, the ingenuity, really, of what's called the plain style. The plain style is, you know, we, we see it pioneered by Perkins, but all it is is just these ministers that are taking the word of God and opening it up. So they, they read the text, they work through it doctrinally and expositionally, they, they pull apart the text itself, they explain it, and then they apply it. They give the doctrines, they give the uses of the text, and it's very ordinary. There's nothing special to it. They just want to explain the truth of God's word. And so Cotton then becomes converted to the plain style of preaching. So much so that he he's, he's billed to go to St. Mary's Chapel and preach this sermon, and he goes and the place fills up and they can't wait to hear this young guy preach. 
And he decides that instead of giving this big, huge, grandiose sermon, he's just going to do what his his pastor, Sibs, does and what Perkins did. He's just going to open up a text and explain it and preach on it. So that's what he does. He gets up and he, you know, open your Bible to, you know, John chapter whatever. He preaches the sermon and uh, the audience become, they they're, they get upset. They get angry that he's not preaching this entertaining sermon. They, they begin to pull the caps over their heads, down over their ears and is a sign of contempt and disgust. And so they basically, they basically boo him off the, out of the platform. So he, he gets down from the pulpit after the sermon's done and he goes back to his room and kind of hangs his head, you know, and he knows he was faithful, but it, you know, it was a little bit of a letdown because nobody wanted to hear the sermon. Well, just then, this minister named John Preston, who was already an eminent scholar, eminent Puritan minister, uh, comes to him and knocks on his door and uh, opens it up. And he, he confesses to him that I, I just, I realize in listening to your sermon that I need to be saved and gets converted, you know, by this, you know, by any, by any other standard, just this boring textual sermon, John Preston becomes a Christian. And, uh, and they become uh, good friends over the next several years. And so just the whole, the whole narrative of, of his conversion to Christ and his conversion to really expository preaching and then just the impact it has on Preston. I mean, you, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, it's just amazing. This just stories. And so uh, I, I love that story so much. And that's just such, that was such a joy to write about that. And that's one of the reasons I love Cotton so much. That's a wonderful story. At the end of, uh, at the end of the biography, there's a, a quote from Mr. Wilson, who's co-pastor, I guess, at the, the church with him. And this is what he says. He says, Mr. Cotton preaches with such authority, demonstration in life, that methinks when he preaches out of any prophet or apostle, I hear not him. I hear that very prophet and apostle. Yeah, I hear the Lord Jesus Christ himself speaking in my heart. That was part of uh, of the task of writing the American Puritans biographies was to try to capture a lot of those kinds of sentiments. You know, what do people think of these people? And uh, I, I love that quote. That's one of my favorites of John Cotton. But yeah, he, again, nothing really glamorous about him. He just was faithful. He just, he loved God. He loved the word of God. And he just wanted to expound and explain it and did it with such conviction and passion that he was faithful. God used him uh, to speak truth. There's one story of this this drunken you know this drunken kid who he and his buddies are out partying and he you know, walks up and he's going to go make sport of of John Cotton and he whispers in his ear you know thou art an old fool you know and and Cotton responds you know yes I am and you know we're both fools and let's pray that God makes us wise unto salvation you know just had all these little these little quips and little you know things he would say to people. He didn't respond uh, maliciously. He didn't respond, you know, angrily. He just, he just tried to carry himself as a godly man, and uh, yeah, just a remarkable figure. Yeah, there's another another story uh, which I find just so fascinating and a testimony to his godliness. You know, as someone who was known for his strong uh, preaching, known as a preacher, in uh, in the chapter on legacy. It says, uh, you know, that there was a fellow who followed him home complaining about, uh, you know, his preaching, how it had become dark and very flat. To this, Cotton answered, brother, brother, it may be both, both. Let me have your <laughs> prayers that it might be otherwise. <laughs> both uh, both yeah, quick-witted, absolutely. but also... Uh, yeah, he took a lot of flack from people, but, you know, he just... You know, he wasn't a perfect man. I mean, he made some, he made a lot of mistakes. I mean, there there were things that happened during his life in ministry that 
uh, that were painful for him and things that I think history has judged him harshly for. But at the very core of who he was, I mean, he he made his best effort to try to honor God. I mean, that was his that was the driving force behind his ministry. I want to do what's right, and uh, he really did try. You know. And the other thing that I really, uh, you know, took away from the biography is just the deep love in which his congregation loved him. Yeah, I mean, there were even people that were in his church, and so he, he pastored a, a church in two Bostons. He lived, first he pastored in Boston, Lincolnshire, England, and then when he came to America, he pastored in, pa- pastored History in Boston. History is kind of and skewed about this. There's a lot of discussion about whether or not they actually named um, the town after Boston after John Cotton. You know, it used to be called uh, Shamit was the name of Boston before that. Uh, but there was just so many people that came over to to the city from his old church. I mean, f- just for example, Anne Hutchinson brought her whole family to follow him, and that was not an uncommon thing. These churches followed their pastors. Uh, and so there was definitely a love and a reverence and a respect for this man uh, in a way that's really uh, uh, unlike today in a lot of cases. One thing I wanted to kind of actually backtrack a little bit is you were talking about ecclesiology, and and one thing that you notice right away in the biography is that he's ordained as the teacher in Boston, and there seems to be a distinguishing office or or something where there's a pastor and then there's a teacher. Did you uh, can you fill us in sort of how that works? Yeah, so one of the things that we noticed from the early uh, Puritan churches in America, uh, again, I haven't studied this out in terms of England, but for America, they would normally uh, have at least two ministers in any given church. They would have a teaching minister, so that would be the teaching pastor, and they would have an actual minister who would be in charge of of the care of the souls, and so they would divide the labors up. So every church in, in New England had at least two ministers, um, sometimes when they'd go out a little bit farther out, they couldn't afford to bring on a second, but it, their, the most advantageous uh, attempt was to have two ministers. Um, and so Cotton would have been uh, the primary teacher of the church. He would teach, he would catechize, um, he would be doing systematic uh, studies of theology, which was called divinity. And then um, John Wilson was the the ministering pastor. So, I mean, they would also, they would both teach in some capacity, but really uh, Wilson was the one who was in, in charge of, of the care of the souls of the people. Uh, when you go out to you know, the first church in, or uh, first or second, second church in Boston, um, which is called South Church, you have Increased Mather and you have Cotton Mather. Increased Mather is the teaching pastor. Cotton Mather becomes the, the ministering pastor. So, you know, they divided up their labors, and they just thought it was more efficient that way. They thought it was a better way to, to pastor the churches. And so, you know, there's something to that. You know, there's something to, you know, the responsibilities of a sole pastor who's not only trying to preach and teach every week, but also care for the flock. Uh, it's a lot of work, for sure. Um, and certainly, you know, many faithful men have done this over the course of time. Uh, but the Puritans really had a model in their mind that if I can, if we can divvy up the labors, we can be more effective in our in our attempt at ministry. So that was the setup in Boston was to have two, and every church had at least two ministers. And that that's great. Okay, well so the other thing I wanted you to talk about is uh, just John Owen, and uh, there's a, a kind of a, a neat little story about John Owen and his uh, refutation of uh, of some of Cotton's work. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I love this story. This again, this, so you, you hit me with John Cotton. I love everything about his life, all the different stories. 
So uh, the story is that John Owen, who is certainly a, a titan in his own right, um, the, the way that this is understood is that Owen would, when he would want to learn and grow and sort of challenge his own position, he would really nail down his own theology, and he wanted to be intellectually honest. So what he would do is he would go out and find the strongest argument of opposition to his own theology, and he would read it and study it, and then therefore try to uh, refute his own theology so that it would become stronger. Uh, and if there were holes in his theology, he would try to uh, figure that out, and he would uh, attack his own theology to to really prove it through even farther. And it made him a better apologist, too, because if he understood the strongest arguments against, he could then refute those. So uh, the story is that Owen uh, really starts to examine ecclesiology, and uh, in so doing, he, he held to a Presbyterian form of government. And uh, when it came time for you know the Westminster Assembly, um, he is really assessing his own theology. There was a sort of a movement uh, of independency at this time. This is 1640s. And a lot of the, the independent ministers, they're presenting the congregational form of government. And by the time you get to Westminster, it was a minority position. I mean, no, no one held this position, which is why the three ministers that were invited from America didn't go because, you know, as Thomas Hooker said, I don't want to go 3,000 miles to agree with three people, you know. Uh, so they send over works, and John Cotton sends over his work called The Keys to the Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, John Owen reads this work because, you know, this is rumored to be like the key work on congregationalism. He reads the work and then realizes that he can't refute the logic or the theology of this work, and according to history, reads uh, John Cotton's The Keys of the Kingdom and changes his view and becomes independent because of John Cotton's work. And uh, from that point on, becomes really a student of John Cotton and loves his, his work, loves his theology. Uh, we believe he had reverence for him before that, but that was really kind of a, a turning point. And later on, after John Cotton dies, um, actually John Owen writes a, a defense, a 182-page defense of John Cotton's theology after his death. And so there was a connection between those two ministers, and John Cotton played a huge part uh, at least in some way of the formulation of John Owen's uh, thoughts. May we be uh, men who uh, at once abandon our our beliefs if we are convinced by Scripture otherwise. All right, brother. Well, uh, before Absolutely. we wrap up here, I have a few things I want to run by you. First thing is, is there anything that you've been reading these days that you'd like to share about So the, the, yeah, the next book that I'm working on, there's, I have a few other things coming out that are in editorial right now, but the next thing that I'm working on is uh, hopefully going to be a biography of uh, Isaac Smith, who is the first minister in Gilmanton, which is my hometown. So I've just been reading a lot of works on, um, you know, 18th century congregationalism and New England ministry, and so still in the same line of New England history, but reading a lot more about uh, the era of Edwards, um, looking at uh, the New Divinity Movement and how that took its a, a place in, in New England history, reading about the Second Great Awakening, and so that's just everything I've been doing is reading uh, just works of history, reading Joseph Bellamy, and just trying to wrap my brain around uh, this fascinating movement. Uh, so what's history. the best way for listeners to keep track of what you're doing? 
Yeah, so I'm pretty much on every social media platform, uh, at least the ones that a 40-year-old should be on. I'm not on some of the newer ones here that are coming out, but uh, I'm on Twitter quite a bit, so you can follow me at, uh, at Nate Pickowitz on Twitter. I'm also on Facebook. I have a ministry page on Facebook. Uh, once in a blue moon, I post on Instagram, but uh, Twitter is kind of the main thing, and I just try to post, you know, scripture and thoughts and quotes and, you know, promo of books that are interesting that are coming out and yeah, I mean, I'm pretty active, so if anybody certainly wants to follow and just kind of see what That's we're great, doing. That's great, brother. Well, uh, thanks so much for joining me, and I've really had a, a wonderful time with you. It's always a pleasure, Chance. I really appreciate your, your work and your ministry and your heart for publishing good content, so keep it up, brother. Mm-hmm.